Andrew, and this is Stephen Knight. Welcome to the show, Stephen. How are you doing? Very well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. It's good to see you. I've done lots of stuff before with Stephen. Stephen is the godless spell checker. Stephen is the night tube on YouTube. Go check out his stuff. Lots of stuff about sort of secularism and anti-conspiracy theories. And well, actually, I shouldn't tell some of you guys that. But, you know, he does lots of good stuff. And by the way, where's Sean? Where is this enigmatic, elusive, incredible, hairy-backed creature that we so love and adore. Uh, Sean is around the country right now doing some quite incredible work, making podcasts and things based on your suggestions um, all around going city to city. Ash has put this all together, the lovely producer, and uh, he's going to be making this like really professionally filmed stuff. He's the hardest working guy I've ever met. It's, abs- it's just completely ridiculous off the charts. And it's a privilege for us to be able to take over his show today um, and we're going to be doing so for the next couple of weeks so get used to us it's not quite you know the same as uh, as uh, as Sean but uh, we'll do a good job of it I'll just run you through who we've got today we've got Mark Shaw at six o'clock um, I'll be covering that first time and at would unleashed and he wrote collateral damage uh, so he claims that there has been um, no cover-up of Robert Kennedy's complicity Uh, Sorry, I'll say that again. He claims that if there had been no cover-up of Robert Kennedy's complicity in the murder of Marilyn Monroe in 1962, and he had been prosecuted based on compelling evidence at the time, the assassination of JFK by Bobby's enemies would not have happened. Changing the course of history and preventing the murder of media icon Dorothy Kilgallen. Now that sounds quite complex and intricate and mad, but I'm sure that will be explained to us in a way that we can all stomach it and all take it in and enjoy. The JFK stuff's always really interesting, and I know a lot of people are really excited to hear about that i certainly am and then we'll get on 6 30 to the dark journalist and he does all sorts of discussing ufos and also his thoughts on the jfk assassination so if you like jfk assassination stuff then you're going to love this i was in dallas not at the time obviously because i wasn't born yet but i went to dallas and saw all that stuff and that was quite interesting seven o'clock Stephen will be taking over and doing a brilliant job, I'm sure. And it will be M.K. Davis who's coming on, a Bigfoot researcher, one of the most revered, acclaimed Bigfoot search researchers there are. Uh, really interested to see how Stephen prods and probes him and all that stuff. Uh, 7.30, Jeffrey Nadolny will be coming on uh, to talk about all sorts of deep dives into bizarre theories and government cover-ups. So Stephen will be tackling those with him as well. We move to Patreon. For those of you who sign up to Patreon, do sign up to Sean's wonderful Patreon. Uh, Elena Danan is going to be on to talk about how she was abducted by aliens at the age of nine. Uh, the aliens were from a place called Zed Reticuli, and her she was then rescued by the Galactic Federation of Worlds. It sounds quite out there, but that's what this show is about. It's exciting and interesting, so I hope you've sort of come with us to Patreon for that. And then we'll get Alex Stein on to talk about uh, challenging woke culture and why it's important to make light of today's culture wars. And then finally on Patreon, as we're all tired and slipping into the dark night of sleep or whatever, it's going to be Chris Armitage, uh, who has a Master's of Science in Homeland Security and he'll be talking about forced sex transporting is the word we're using on YouTube, because another word that you might think of with cars and things when they stop at red lights uh, can sometimes be flagged and get certain channels like Sean's in trouble. But transporting sex people by 
force. So that's good. And just to tell those of you who are listening to the Sean Atwood True Crime podcast, because that's this is going out on that as well. I'm Andrew Gold. I'm a former BBC journalist, and I now have a podcast called On the Edge with Andrew Gold, where I talk about all this kind of things. Do come and check it out. And if you do, say that you came from Sean's stuff and all that, because I like that. I always tell Sean that you came from there. And Stephen, why don't you give us a little bit of an intro to, to yourself in that manner as well? Certainly. Bravo. Great job, Andrew, by the way. There's a lot going on there. I'm very excited about hearing from some of these people, for sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm Stephen Knight. I'm a blogger, podcaster, YouTuber, sometimes independent reporter. I like to focus around topics that um, either transgress or promote freedom of expression and try and dig into what the truth of the matter is. So that's my general interest. Well, there you go. And I'm a big fan of your stuff. Um, got this from this this abusive fan right now, Ashley Meikle, who appears to have the same name and face as the producer of this show, going, where is Atwood? Angrily, where is Atwood? He is, he's probably listening in. He'll definitely listen to this later, especially as he's uploading it to all sorts of places. So everybody watch what they say and watch how you behave. So we're going to be talking over the next 10 minutes about stuff in the news. Ash wanted us to talk about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, but I want to give you the choice of that or Ricky Gervais and cancel culture and comedy because those are the two big things at the moment. Oh, I'm just trying to think which one will make me the least least angry. Um, (laughs) I suppose with the the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing, I think I first convinced myself I was looking at it because I had some sort of academic interest in defamation and where the line is. And no, it's just been really entertaining, which then makes me feel bad because it is a a court case that does involve potential assault, sexual abuse, things like that. How do you feel about big celebrity-based court battles being televised in that way, essentially becoming disposable entertainment? It's a really interesting point, actually, because I'm writing this book about the psychology of secrets and how secrets are uh, gradually dying, the idea of a secret. And what's really interesting in that case isn't just now that Depp and Heard stuff is all out in the open. It's also the sort of the side effects of that. So you get stuff like, um, I keep forgetting his name, Paul Bettany, who, did you see he sent texts joking about, you know, we should burn the witch about Amber Heard. And now those were read out and it started making me think, oh God, what if I send, because I send horrible things to friends of mine, um, even just before we came on. The, the amount even of just C to me. Ex- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, and I, what I do, I say horrible things. I say before Sean comes on usually the most horrible things I can in the seconds before he goes live to try and make him laugh. And he often does start laughing. But imagine if that stuff, if somebody has a court case in 50 years and it all gets read out, what does that say about our privacy? Yeah, if I was made to read out various messages in my WhatsApp groups in a court of law, that would not look good for me. There's also something about things void of context being placed as text that make them a million times worse as well. Uh, I think there's two things that have to happen, really. I think either we have to engender this idea to people, especially young people, not to send or write down anything you wouldn't be comfortable having read out in court or the culture needs to change a little bit where we don't judge people by specific incidents that don't give the whole picture. I don't th- I think I don't think any of us are exempt from this idea of saying something off color in our lives. Yeah. What what boring people as well, you know? Don't you want people yeah. who swear and say things that transgress societal norms, right? 
But I suppose, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we would just want to move on and we flitting, flitting around a little bit. But we did talk, you did mention at the top of the show, perhaps talking about Ricky Gervais's uh, new yeah. special, Super Niche. But I suppose this ties back into the idea of using irony for the purposes of humor. You know, as Gervais puts it, uh, saying the wrong thing for a laugh because we all know what the right thing is. Uh, and that's very much what his new special does. And that's caused a lot of controversy in the press uh, and on Twitter, I'm sure. I think we, we've both spoke before about our um, mutual admiration for the work of Ricky Gervais. Uh, I think we both saw Supernature live uh, at different dates. I think I, I saw it yeah. pre-pandemic. That's how how long ago it was. It's finally landed on Netflix. And I don't know about you, but I remember watching it live and I could almost tick off and pinpoint the flashpoints that would be taken and turned into some sort of controversy. Not because they're controver- controversial per se, but I could see how they may have been misrepresented or how people may have portrayed them in this current climate of uh, sort of outrage culture and, and offence taking where, where stand-up comedy is uh, concerned especially. Well, I think a lot of the laughter you could say is outrage. Is, is Sorry, is, is relief, isn't it? It's relief that you can, you, somebody's finally said something in a public sphere that we're so scared. So many people might say just between their friends, which again, you should be careful about because you never know when that's going to end up in a court case. But that that is being said aloud and that we can all just agree and nobody's actually going okay now let's go and attack trans people now we're going to go and attack chinese people or whatever he was saying in, in his thing it's just like oh someone said stuff and language and language didn't hurt and kill us you know yeah and the the peculiar thing is i, I mean and i would consider myself this way and i certainly think it's true of ricky that he's a very liberal progressive individual in general i would say he'd be an ally to trans rights uh of mm. course he, he has a strong sense of uh individual liberty i think it comes from that sort of working class uh upbringing of one person one voice one vote kind of thing it's the only sort of power you can you can muster in them circumstances and it's especially important to have when you don't have anything else so i think he understands that but i think where people sort of um forget is that he's a comedian and it's his job to make jokes and make people laugh and every subject is is a valid target for that and if you look at his jokes they're very clearly constructed it's never at the expense of the quote-unquote transgender community as a whole or or muslims as a whole he's, he's taking shots at religious conservatism dogmas ideologies power structures uh cultural norms you know worldviews all sorts of things it's never it's never a never gets up there and starts basically just trashing a certain type of person. Um, he's making jokes about things in the peripherals. Uh, and it's resonated, from what I can see, with uh, both sides of the camp. Yeah, I would just say to the person who says Ricky doesn't dare to make jokes about Jews, he constantly makes jokes about Jews and the Holocaust in particular. So that's just utterly unfounded, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah. He hates the Jews. <laughs> no, that's not true. Made that up. See, that yeah. was a joke. That was that was me being ironic. <laughs> he makes jokes about everyone and and he often points out that like people will come afterwards and say like you know i was offended because you made jokes about dyslexia and he was like but you were fine with the holocaust ones the the fat ones the this ones that ones it's always that your specific one the thing that you hold dear to you you don't want people to make jokes about but then when it's about someone else you know you don't care yeah i was thinking about this today because obviously for me personally and i appreciate this is subjective but the best kind of humor is where the punchline blindsides you and you're not expecting it. It's took a left turn and that that makes you laugh involuntary and then all of a sudden there's a followed by a quick gasp because you realise what you've just laughed at. <laughs> and for a comedian to construct that so well, 
they have to be ultra aware of what the correct and moral position is to pull the rug from under you in that way. P only people who are actually ethical individuals can make these kinds of jokes. Otherwise, you'd just be Jim Davidson. You'd just be Bernard Manning. You'd mm. just be Roy Chubby Brown uh, taking pot yeah. shots at the expense of uh, minorities uh, uh, and such. We, we, sh we should say those are quite British um, oh, yeah. um, references, aren't they? So they, they were just people who were quite sort of uh, uh, old-fashioned and right-wing and, and perhaps racist back in the day. Some of Gervais' stuff does sort of go very close to that. And then he afterwards sort of shows he was being ironic. Is there ever a sort of point where, I don't know, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the Ling Ling uh, about ringing the Chinaman stuff. And he knows how sort of hacked... Oh, is it hacked? Is that the word? Yeah, that, that hackneyed that that joke is. Um, but is there is there ever a case to sort of say, well, hang on, you, you're just making the Roy Chubby Brown jokes, but then laughing afterwards to say, you know, you didn't mean it? Potentially, but I'm not entirely sure that kind of thing. I mean, it it is it's poking fun at stereotypes, isn't it? In a way, mm. and it mm. it is it is the way it's. The way it's constructed it is to subvert the audience's expectations of it. It's not just done to mock, uh, I think, Chinaman was the, was the phrase used in the show. He knows what all the wrong words are. He knows where all the lines are so he can dip his toe in and out of it. Um, I, think it I think it's fair game. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it one of the reasons that joke was so funny, and I actually got one of the biggest laughs from because it was so childish and silly and unexpected yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, that's spot. I think you're spot on there. Um, we got a great, did you see the comment that I, you know, I don't, I don't always look at the comments, but one caught my eye saying, Sean is fabulous. Mm. Uh, shouldn't miss a show, but he gave us two good looking guys to fill in. I don't pick the ones we put up here. Ash insists he's in the background saying, you've got to put this one up. Two good looking guys there. Um, articulate, intelligent discussion and eye candy. I wouldn't usually read that kind of thing out, Stephen, but Ash forced me to. What do you think of that? I'm going to uh, print screen it, if that's okay. <laughs> Put it on really my fridge. Idea. Right, Stephen, <laughs> you're going to be back in an hour. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of what, log, you, log you off, toggle you off. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll see you in an hour, mate. See you soon. Right, that was Stephen, and I'm about to bring in the lovely Mark Shaw. Mark, how are you doing? <laughs> well, all right, Ricky Gravaz and Johnny Depp, and now me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, you're, you're Ricky Gervais and, and Mark Shaw, that's what it's all about. Where are you talking to us from today? I'm in uh, Santa Clara, California, just south of San Francisco. And you guys are good looking. I, I agree with this. So uh, that oh, was a good hey, comment. You're a handsome, handsome man yourself, Mark. Let's not get around. Let's not beat about the bush. Let me, let me ask you, what's, um, what's your background and why did you want to write Collateral Damage? Well, well, uh, uh, checkered background, uh, uh, Andrew, but uh, started as a criminal defense lawyer and, uh, uh, you know, mostly all murder cases. And so I'm always looking at motive and all of that and never even really thought about writing any books. But then uh, I, I became a network television analyst over here. The first one was for the Mike Tyson trial back in 1992. Uh, the rape trial. And I covered that for USA Today and CNN, ABC, all of that. And uh, I wrote my first book, uh, Down for the Count, which um, uh, I didn't agree with that verdict. They had very little evidence about uh, Maryland or about uh, uh, the victim in that case. And so that started me off. And then I just kept writing and writing and writing. Uh, collateral damage basically uh, is, is the 
Um, I never, never really thought I would even write it. Uh, I had learned about the JFK assassination, obviously, when I was in college, but I never really was interested in it that much. And then uh, I had practiced law with a famous lawyer in San Francisco that many of your older audience may know may, named Melvin Belli. And he represented Jack Ruby, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, I started to look into Belli when I wrote a biography of him and found out that his representation of Ruby uh, was, um, you know, uh, inept. Uh, he, he really, uh, it was kind of a whitewash. He never went after uh, the defense of Ruby, uh, didn't let him testify, uh, made him look crazy and all of that. And so that's what got me into all of this. And then I found out through a clue. I think you're, you're an investigative reporter in some ways. So as I am, and a historian as I am, and so I found out that there was this reporter named Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, who was uh, famous for being on a quiz show called What's My Line uh, on, on CBS every Sunday night, but then I found out that she had actually been at the Jack Ruby trial. Uh, she was the only reporter to really go against the grain with J. Edgar Hoover yelling Oswald alone all the time, but she got to interview Ruby and all of that, and uh, that led her to New Orleans, and she started to look into the JFK assassination, not believing the Oswald alone theory, but believing that there was a gangster in New Orleans named Carlos Marcello, who Robert Kennedy had deported uh, shortly after becoming attorney general. Uh, that was a double cross because uh, they had helped uh, uh, JFK, JFK become president, and they were supposed to leave those gangsters alone, but Bobby went after Marcello. And so... Uh, Dorothy wrote all these columns, some of which I have, basically, uh, you know, saying that uh, there was no way that uh, it was Oswald alone, that Marcello uh, was the one who had orchestrated the death of John F. Kennedy to render Bobby Kennedy a powerless, which is exactly what happened. He never went after those gangsters again. And so uh, that got me more interested. I then wrote denial of justice about all of that, which included the Ruby trial transcripts and the fact that that whole uh, business about Jack Ruby just happening, happening to end up at the Dallas Police Department basement uh, and shoot Ruby or shoot Oswald was bunk, that he had planned to be there. He had friends in his uh, Dallas Police Department help him get into the basement. He had told someone, I will be there and all of that. And so that was, uh, I had now looked into the JFK assassination. I looked into Dorothy Kilgallen's death because shortly after she went to New Orleans and went back to New York City and told her hairdressers if the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination would cost me my life. I'm afraid for my life and family. Um, I always get a chill when I talk about this. She was found dead in her Manhattan uh, townhouse, uh, a staged death scene, uh, no way that she would have ever committed suicide. She was Catholic, and so that was obviously a homicide. I looked into that and was able to prove that Marilyn was killed because she was actually the reporter who knew too much, which was the name of that best-selling book, uh, released, uh, what, three or four or five years ago. So I was wow. done with all of that. But I, I kept getting, uh, and I'm sure I'll get these kinds of emails perhaps from your listeners, and my email is on my website, markshawbooks.com that said, uh, hey, is there a, a connection between the deaths of Marilyn Monroe, John F. Kennedy, and Dorothy Kilgallen? They died within 40 months of each other. Marilyn, 62, August, JFK, 63, November, Dorothy, 65, November. And I didn't think there was a connection. 
But I began to look into that, and uh, we can get into that now if you'd like to, as to how I ended up connecting the three deaths and then pointing to the fact that Bobby Kennedy was actually instrumental in the death of Marilyn Monroe. Wow. I mean, that's all just fascinating. This is really explosive stuff and a lot of stuff that none of us know anything about. Um, like I was saying before, I was in Dallas. I had a look around. I went to all the sort of monuments and stuff like that. And right. this is all right. stuff that's just beyond any of my understanding and stuff. Um, that What's my line thing? I watched that sometimes. I didn't even know much about it, but it's on YouTube. You can find all the retro ones. And I saw sort of exactly. Salvador Dali on there, Woody Allen, people like that. Really fascinating show. Um, but we'll get into that sort of side of it in a bit. Well, Let's talk a little bit about Marilyn Monroe's affair with Bobby Kennedy. Is that is that sort of you know absolutely certain that that was going on? I don't know enough about the history. Is that is that known right. or is that well? Dorothy had become what uh, the New York Post called the most powerful female voice in America. She was syndicated to two hundred newspapers across the country with with uh, her voice of Broadway column. She had "What's My Line" listened to by millions of people on Sunday night. She had a radio show. She was a big deal. And so uh, she had the best sources and everything, as I believe I have in my books, and I have with the new one that's coming out in November called Fighting for Justice, which uh, takes this, uh, what I'm talking about, even to a further uh, extension. So uh, when I started looking into the connection between Dorothy and Marilyn, the first thing that I found, you know, the, uh, your, your listeners may know or may not know, the official verdict regarding Marilyn's death was probable suicide. And, and, a, and an outstanding forensic scientist over here named, um, named Cyril Weck, who's become a good, a good supporter of mine, said in, he's, he's handled 16,000 autopsies, and he never saw that verdict probable suicide. And so uh, I looked into that, but first I found a photograph of Marilyn and Dorothy together. I knew that Marilyn had been to Dorothy's home for parties in Manhattan, but I found this photograph of them on the set of a movie uh, that was being made, I think it was called Let's Call Love or something like that with Yves uh, Montan, a, a picture of the two. And then, you know, Marilyn obviously was supposed to be uh, suicidal. And so the, the official verdict was probable suicide and all of that. But there was this column that Dorothy wrote, and, and it was amazing to me because uh, it, it said, and I, I just will read it to you, uh, the headline, Marilyn Monroe has Hollywood talking again. Her health must be improving. She's been attending Hollywood parties and has become the talk of the town again. In California, they're circula circulating a photo of her smiling everywhere. And she's cooking in the sexual uh, appeal department. She's vastly alluring to a handsome gentleman that is bigger than Joe DiMaggio in his heyday. So don't write off Marilyn as finished. Well, the Joe DiMaggio, that's her second husband, uh, the baseball player, the All of Famer uh, New York Yankee slugger. Well, that didn't Simon sound Dolphin. to me, and I'm sure it doesn't sound to you, and it doesn't sound to your listeners like a woman who's about to commit suicide. So I began to look into that. If you want to cover up a murder, and this is what happened in Dorothy's case, the way, easiest way to do it is with an autopsy. And in Marilyn's death on the morning she died on August 5th, 1962, the first indication in the uh, certificate of death was probably was suicide or was uh, uh, overdose of drugs about four hours later it was changed to probable suicide well that made me even more suspicious of what happened and like you when i read that column by dorothy that basically said a, a gentleman a bigger name than joe dimaggio i thought if Marilyn was killed who could be the main suspect in that death well your listeners probably are thinking well it was john kennedy 
because as you may remember, and you've probably seen the video of her singing happy birthday to uh, JFK on his 45th birthday in Madison Square Garden and all of it. Well, they had an affair. And it was short-lived, unfortunately, because Joe Kennedy, the father, said, look, you're going to run for president. We don't need headlines with you and, uh, and, uh, and, and Marilyn Monroe. So then I think you know that in, in any investigation you do, there finally is a, a clue. Something happens that changes everything. And that is what I'll show up. You won't be able to read it, but this is a CIA document, super secret, uh, issued on uh, August 3rd, 1962, which was just two days before Marilyn died. It is wiretap conversation of Marilyn's conversations with, with Robert Kennedy and also Marilyn's conversations with Dorothy Kilgallen. And I've substantiated that through various evidence. I only use primary sources. I confirm when I can and all of that. And so I've done done that. So in this is a very lethal CIA document. Because what, it, what does it show? First, it talks about the fact that there is this relationship between uh, the two Kennedy brothers and, and Marilyn. And it talks about the fact that um, she has been privy to information that they have provided for her, either through pillow talk or bragging or whatever, you know, the egotistical Kennedy brothers. And basically it says that, you know, after uh, uh, there was this love affair, well, let's talk about the love affair first. The second page of the document, which is this page, Robert, Ken Robert Kennedy has been having a romance and sex affair over a period of time with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, he, he admitted, Robert Kennedy was deeply involved emotionally with Marilyn Monroe and repeatedly promised to divorce his wife, Ethel, to marry Marilyn Monroe. Well, that had taken place, and I knew it had because Bobby was in Los Angeles in the summer of 1962. Uh, he was working on a film for his book, The uh, Enemy Within, about the gangsters. I placed him uh, in, in uh, L.A. during that particular time and all of that. So I knew that that made sense. But in the document, what was gold, really, for me as an investigative reporter was, subject repeatedly called the attorney general and complained the way she was being ignored by the president and his brother. Subject threatened to hold a press conference and would tell all. And this is the one that, was, that, that basically was the reason why she had to be silenced. Subject made references to bases in Cuba and knew of the president's plan to kill Fidel Castro. If they leaked wow. that information to her and she went to the press with this, I mean, that's pretty much almost treason by the Kennedy brothers telling her about that. It would have ruined their careers. Bobby and, and John Kennedy would have had to have left office and all of that. So there, in my mind, is the motive for having to kill Marilyn Monroe and silence her. And then I would take that and look at the evidence that I could find in terms of how they would have orchestrated that death. It's really a, an interesting theory, and I think uh, one of the reasons suicide works so well as as a you know potential cover up um, is because by that point her behaviour I might be right in saying I'm just basing this on movies I've seen over the years was becoming more and more erratic as she was struggling with the fame and the paparazzi and different men in her life. Is that right? Well, I, I will have interrupt you there because an awful lot of that was put out. Uh, Marilyn mm. was a very smart woman. Uh, she was not a dumb blonde. If you read a Collateral Dage and you read uh, a book called Fragments, that includes Marilyn's poetry. 
her writings. I mean, for God's sake, she was a voracious uh, a, a reader. She wrote Ulysses, uh, mm. read Ulysses. I, I had I had trouble reading Ulysses. So she no, was very smart. And there were all these, uh, you know, there's a Netflix documentary about Marilyn out there now. And it talks about all the terrible things that were going on in her life and how bad, you know, her, her mental aspect was. But that really wasn't true. She was on the upswing. Uh, she was going to get rid of the Kennedy. She was going to remarry Joe DiMaggio. She had Broadway offers. She was hoping to come to to London and do some some films over here. So that's what can happen when somebody takes a verdict, suicide, and then decides to match everything to it instead of the other way around. And and that is what the quarrel that I have with reporters today. There's, there's little integrity there because they decide they want this sensational headline and then they match everything to that. Dorothy never did that. I've had all these people around this world say, boy, if we had a reporter like Dorothy Kilgallen today, that's what we need, somebody like that. So I will tell you, uh, if you look at the, the evidence, uh, and, and I have that in collateral damage and also you know, in the new book, Fighting for Justice, you will find out that a lot of that, you know, her friends basically were saying she was on the upswing. Uh, even this um, this producer who was involved in the Netflix documentary said everybody he talked to uh, the last week that Marilyn was alive said she wasn't suicidal. So unfortunately, you know, Marilyn, I've kind of become the voice of Marilyn and of Dorothy with regard to their deaths because I think it's my duty to try to speak up for them because they can't fight back against all that uh, that sort of evidence. So, so you're you are yeah you want to change the I suppose the PR around Marilyn Monroe and her yeah, legacy. She deserves And then that. also the Kennedys, I mean, they come across now. Of course, I wasn't around back when the Kennedys were, but they uh, seem to be in many respects portrayed as the good guys. How do you feel about that? Well, I, do, I don't I, I I I can't quite agree with that. They were known as womanizers, both of them. Uh, JFK may have been a bit worse with that than Bobby was, but both of them dated all these women. Poor Jackie Kennedy had to go through that. Bobby cheated on his wife. I mean, it was really disappointing that that, that, that happened. And so, you know, as you get uh, the situation with Robert Kennedy in Maryland, now he's in the soup because he knows that she's, I mean, this, this CIA document was given to him. So he knew that she was a threat. She was a time bomb. And as August of uh, August 5th of, of 62 comes along, what does Bobby do? Well, he's not going to be involved in the actual murder of him. He's too big of a coward to do something like that. So he uses the alibi that he's in San Francisco on the day she died. I proved through um, evidence that, that he was in Los Angeles. I have right in front of me the ledger at 20th Century Fox Studio. On the day she died, a helicopter lands. It's, it's uh, Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford. Uh, you know, the, 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 the brother of, of, of the uh, who married one of the sisters of the Kennedys. I have a, a, a police account that says uh, Bobby was in a limousine at midnight. And I've been able to prove that he went over to Marilyn's home, begged her not to go to the media. And when she refused that, uh, he was able to orchestrate what happened to Marilyn on the night she died. Uh, the the verdict was that she swallowed more than 50 pills, which is impossible, basically, uh, in the time frame. There was no glass where she could have ingested those, and I'll leave it to people to look at collateral damage and, and all of that to see exactly how she was m murdered. But uh, basically, it was the fact that there were uh, rectal insertions of these uh, barbiturates uh, 
in, in, in Marilyn's body that caused the death. And, and one of the most incredible things to me is that anybody, whether it's Jane Doe or Marilyn Monroe, is, is, it should get a, a viable autopsy. And in this situation, uh, Thomas Noguchi, who's famous for the Michael Jackson case and all these cases, mm. basically after the autopsy said, well, you know what? I made a few mistakes. I forgot to look at Marilyn's inner organs, some of those. And by the time I knew that happened, imagine this. I, I, by the time I knew this happened, they had destroyed them. So she never really got a fair shake. There was no investigation, just like there was no investigation of Dorothy Kilgallen's death. And in collateral damage, I show more than 50 similarities between these two women, and both of them were denied justice, and I'm going to continue my efforts to get them that justice they deserve. Hmm. I mean, suicides are sort of ripe for both well, controversy, controversy and conspiracy and uh, fiddling around and changing. And I mean, even sort of um, Alan Turing, for example, which seems like an open and shut Oh, case. yes. So these good. distortions of history drive me crazy. Andrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Distortions of history. And in your mind, just to clarify, and for people who have just joined, in your mind, Marilyn Monroe's death was made to look like a suicide, but it was actually the Kennedys who did it to stop her because they had had affairs with her and told her stuff, pillow talk and stuff about stuff about Cuba and stuff like that. Didn't want her coming out with it. And even now, people don't want to talk about this because they want to preserve the angelic image of the Kennedys. Have I gotten this right? Well, yes, you know, people, uh, I get, I get uh, pretty nasty emails because people want to remember Camelot. You know, they want to remember all the good things about the Kennedys, and they did, did some, some good things. There's no question about that. But as a historian, I mean, my, my body of work is being uh, archived at my university, Purdue University. I'm proud of my body of work. And so people, look, I respect your opinion, but the Kennedys were bad people in many ways, and I have more examples in, in collateral and fighting for justice comes out in, in November. And, and it's, it's just amazing that we want to hold on to those things when the, when the truth is facing us right there. And when Marilyn said, you know, I, what, what I say, subject to threaten, threatened, subject threatened to, to call a press conference and tell all, she was dead. There's no way they could have ever let Marilyn Monroe have that press conference. Wow, wow. So then... Tell me about the, the Rothberg report. What's that? Well, that is, that is the CIA document. That's what I've, I've oh. called it. And what, what I've said is, if you look at this uh, with some common sense, if Bobby Kennedy would have been prosecuted, you said this early, if Bobby Kennedy would have been prosecuted for Marilyn Monroe's death based on the mounds of evidence at the time, all right, he would have uh, been prosecuted and there wouldn't have been the need for these, this mobster, Carlos Marcello, to have killed JFK to make Bobby powerless because he would have been powerless and JFK would have never been killed and Dorothy Kilgallen would have never been murdered because there would have been no JFK assassination to investigate. So, you know, that, that changed the course of history, really, because of Bobby's conduct, uh, both with uh, uh, double-crossing the mobsters and then of eliminating Marilyn Monroe. Hmm, man, what a complex. There you go. What do you think, Andrew? 
<laughs> yeah, I just, I just, I'm, to be honest, my mind's blown a little bit here because it's all stuff I didn't know. I'm trying to get my head around it all. I think people in, you know, in the comments must be a bit, a little bit shocked as well. Really interesting to know about this distortion of of history. So JFK, in your mind, was not, um, you know. But okay, let's get on to the actual uh, murder itself. You know, so Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, so what was it? Him? Who? What? What happened with with his um, assassination? Well, it's just absolutely amazing what can happen. Um, when when JFK died, J. Edgar Hoover was shouting to the world, you know, Oswald alone, Oswald alone. Because if it's a nut like Oswald, then the FBI can't be held accountable. But he knew in his mind of the motive with Carlos Marcello and the mobsters having to get rid of, of uh, JFK so Bobby would be powerless. The only reporter who is going against the grain, and you will read these columns of hers in both of those books, Collateral Damage and uh, The Fighting for Justice, it comes out. She was, she was the only one going against the grain. The Oswald file must not close. We don't, you know, there's much more to this. Just like she did with the columns she wrote about Marilyn Monroe. But at that time, nobody was listening to Dorothy. And so in that situation, they just bought uh, hook, line, and sinker what, what uh, um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was saying. Oswald, I have shown that he was involved and connected to Mar Marcello. I have shown that Jack Ruby was connected to Marcello. He had all the motive in the world. And I will just tell you also, uh, you know, you've got those three deaths within 40 months. But then in 1968, RFK is, is assassinated, right? Well, I've been able to show, and, and some of that evidence is in the new book, Fighting for Justice, that Sirhan Sirhan is in all likelihood not the one who uh, actually shot RFK. Who had the greatest motive to have gotten rid of RFK? Well, it's Marcello. Why? Because uh, Bobby Kennedy said many times, I thought they would get one of us, but I thought it would get, it would be JFK. And he has, and, and RFK Jr. has said that Bobby Kennedy knew it was Marcello. So if mm. RFK becomes president, what's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to go after Marcello. So again, can based just, on for, for motive, if you follow later, this through. Mark, Mark yeah. for people who've joined later, can we just explain who Marcelo is? Carlos Marcelo, also known as the Little Man, who that is, just for those who are just joining now. Sure. Marcelo uh, had his empire in New Orleans, uh, drugs, uh, prostitution, uh, gaming, whatever it was. He had built an empire uh, at, at that time worth more than in millions of dollars, which is billions of dollars now. And he controlled all of that. And so the moment that RFK became president, he threw him out of the country. He came back, and then Marcelo had his connections in in um, in Dallas to a guy named Joe Savello and others, and his connections to Ruby and Oswald. And so when they needed to get rid of uh, JFK, he used those connections. I mean, you went to Daily Daily Plaza. You ever talk about a death trap? I mean, there's only one way in and one way out of that. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't get into how many shots there were and who did this or what. Oswald was involved, I know. And then Ruby was brought in to cover up Oswald's uh, situation. But when you look at motive, and I'm pleased that, you know, there's more, more than 7 million views of my presentations and interviews up on YouTube. And I'm proud to say that, you know, my theories have made sense to people because you, you don't go after the wild theories. I don't use that C word. Uh, C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y, if that's spelling it right. I use yeah, plot to kill the president. That's what we had back in 1963. 
and you can fit all the pieces of the puzzle together and get rid of the distortions of history uh, and, and just get down to what the actual truth was. And there you, you think go. Har um, Harvey Oswald might have been in the CIA? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Dorothy uh, concentrated, focused on Jack Ruby. And, and you can go to, my, uh, to the website, uh, markshawbooks.com, but also the dorothykilgallenstory.org, and you'll hear accounts of those, Jack Ruby's lawyer and others, who talk about the fact that she focused on Ruby. And the reason she did is that Lee Harvey Oswald is a confusing situation. He was supposed to be in North Vietnam at one point. He's supposed to be in Russia. He's supposed to be in Mexico. All of that. Dorothy didn't buy it, and I don't either. He was a convenient uh, person to have uh, been involved in, uh, in uh, uh, JFK's death, just as Sirhan Sirhan is a convenient patsy to in be involved in RFK's situation. Th that's how you do that, that you bring that red herring in there. And so basically you're, you're, you're pointed to those people, and that way you won't look deeply uh, into more of what is actually the truth. Wow. So there you have it, everybody. So Marilyn Monroe was killed by the Kennedys. The Kennedys were killed by a mobster called Marcello. And that's that's the real history. It's fascinating. Um, tell me, where, where do you want people to go and find you on Twitter and uh, or, or is it or just the book? So how, where would you like them to go? Well, your producer, Ash, knows that I'm a complete techno dope. So I don't have some of those social uh, media uh, situations out there, but you can find me at markshawbooks.com. That's the easiest place. My website is mshawin at yahoo.com, and I answer every single uh, email, even if you're uh, not very nice to me. I, I, will, I will talk to anybody about this. So I really appreciate you, your you having me on here, Andrew. Thank you. Oh. You're very welcome. I've got one more question I want to ask, though. Um, just what, what is it that got you so interested in, in JFK and the Marilyn Monroe stuff, apart from the fact that it is just very interesting in itself? Maybe with your, with your uh, research you've done, it's something that's small, you know, that becomes large. Uh, I knew Melvin Belli, the lawyer for Ruby in the 1980s, and so I practiced law with him. And then I looked into his, his life and times for a book called Melvin Belli, Court, King of the Courtroom. When I'm talking to a friend of Melvin Belli's, he said, you know, he knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And I didn't know anything about Kilgallen except for what's my life. And so I said, wait a minute, he was on that show? He said, no, she met Dorothy Kil he met Dorothy Kilgallen at the Ruby trial. And you know what, Mark, when she he said to me, they've killed Dorothy. Now they'll go after Jack Ruby. I could never get that quote out of my mind, and that has led to what five or six books now on this subject. So it's it's when people you know people may say why is this relevant today? It's because back then they didn't ask the right questions. You know we had an incredible tragedy in this country yesterday with 19 children and a teacher being slaughtered in a school in Texas, and I guarantee you. Uh, the right questions won't be asked about what that happened, and we'll go on slaughtering people in this country, which is just a disgrace. You have to write the, ask the right questions. People like you do that. Uh, people like, you know, uh, Sean do this and your other guests. You need to keep asking those questions, and then your listeners need to ask those questions. Because many times we just accept what's in the news. We shouldn't do that. And we're too afraid to go after the truth. 
That should never happen. And that's if this would have happened back in the, in, in the early 1960s with all of these deaths, uh, you know, history would have been changed for sure and a lot for the better, in my opinion. You're spot on, Mark. This channel is a lot about seeking truth, getting the truth out, getting secrets out. So right. I agree with you totally. Thank you so much for coming on, Mark, and have a have a lovely day. Everybody go in and get Mark's books. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. You're a good man. Thank you, Mark. So are you. Have a good day. Right, that was Mark. Um, I would just add, there's been a few comments, people talking about how many people are in here compared to the likes ratio. So do, if you get a second, give it a quick little like if you're on YouTube. If you're listening on the audio podcast, ignore what I am talking about. If you've just joined us, whether on the audio or the YouTube or the Facebook or the whatever you're on, because Sean's channel is dominating the world. Uh, Sean is not here today. He's not here for a couple of weeks, I don't believe, or I do believe that he's not here for a couple of weeks. Double negative there. But he is going around the country filming some of his HD quality camera made podcasts, uh, mostly from your suggestions. So thank him later, that wonderful, sexy beast that is Sean Atwood. Um, he'll probably be listening in though. So do keep on uh, commenting and chatting and liking on the, whatever you're doing because he'll, he'll be checking in and making sure that you are doing it. Right. Now it is time for my next guest. It is the Dark Journalist. Hello, Dark Journalist. How are you doing? How are you, Andrew? I am well, thank you. Where are you talking to us from today? Uh, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so right outside of Boston here. Okay, I believe that's a part of America that's like the most similar to the UK in some respects. Absolutely. Everything around here is named after you guys. So we're even New yeah. England. Let's think about it. That's it. That's exactly it. I think I've, I've heard it's very beautiful there as well. Tell me a little bit. So dark journalist, do you do you give your real name out or, or do you stay anonymous because of the nature of your work? Uh, no, it's Daniel List. And uh, basically this kind of work, I think that if you know, if you have some chops as a journalist, you can move uh, through it all. But most of my stuff is under dark journalist. And, uh, you know, for me, that's just a kind of journalism. So if you want to get through to the truth, you're using dark journalism as opposed to kind of mainstream methods. Oh, so dark in, in, that, in that respect means alternative or maybe does it also mean using sort of devious means to collect information that, that otherwise would not be possible? To <laughs> I don't know about devious. Uh, that's interesting. I, uh, I would say, you know, you go to dark places in order to get the stuff. Yes, for sure. And uh, hmm. very often, I mean, my experience in general with the media is certain types of stories get up to a point and you think they're going somewhere. And then there's that choke point, chokes off the story, and everybody in the newsroom goes back to what they were doing. And so if a publisher doesn't want something, if a New York Times publisher says, kill it, that's it. We never hear about it. That's why the alternative media is so crucial, as you guys understand. Yeah. I mean, and is that a big concern? Do you find that the mainstream media is particularly uh, has moved to one side or the other politically in recent years? Oh, it's an incredible shift. I mean, it's dramatic. They've always been, you know, shaping the narrative. Uh, the CIA has been deeply involved with the media since its inception in 47. So they've always had that aspect. But once you got to the Trump election in 2016, they just threw everything out and just went, you know, hardcore. And uh, so they were so dedicated to get one narrative going. And that's kind of a 
inside political war that spread out to the media. And at this point, uh, the media is, you know, a lot of people, and I, I've discussed this with people who watch MSNBC and some of the real traditional stuff, because they really think they're getting the real thing. But, you know, those companies are controlled by pharmaceutical companies, uh, the war machine, you know, they're not going to give you the truth. They're not, you know, public access <laughs> yeah. uh, doing it voluntarily. So we have a wrong idea about the news. Those are paid players. Uh, one of the things that RFK Jr. told me when he came on my show was that certain individuals in the media, like Anderson Cooper, not only are they sponsored at, via CNN, they're sponsored individually by certain companies. So like Pfizer will sponsor Cooper as an individual. So when we get into that, uh, you're no longer able to critique and criticize these people, and that's no longer news. So my theory on that basically is if you're in the truth-telling business and you can't tell the truth, you get out of the business. And uh, that's really where I find ourselves uh, on this. And, of course, in relation to the JFK assassination, that's kind of the classic case for this. Mm. Well, I'm going to get onto that in a second, but I'm just thinking, so I guess you're suggesting it's it's moved very far left, particularly MSNBC and CNN, for example. I look at the UK and as the BBC and Channel 4 have also moved quite far left or, or seem to at least have been taken over by this, the left or the woke side of the culture wars. But you also do have Fox News. Uh, in the UK, we have GB News, which is a sort of imitation in some ways of, of Fox News. So isn't it just a case of, you know, both sides are moving both ways? Yeah, I think they'll use either side for what they want to do, you know, so right now they might be really using the left side and dominating with that, you know, here uh, in America, the DNC and the media are exactly like that. There's just no difference between them. And Fox and, and those types of networks, although they're the conservative networks, there's still stories they won't touch. They don't want to talk about the Federal Reserve. <laughs> uh, and their hosts wear CIA pins. I mean, you know, so they're not going to get at real stories either. So that's kind of What's feeding the, the marketplace. Reserve? Yeah. What is what is the Federal Reserve? Uh, the Federal Reserve, that's uh, the kind of main central bank in America that controls the, the money flow. And, uh, you know, it's been at the heart since 1913 of a number of scandals and problems uh, in this country and around the world. And they're the guys who just keep printing the money. Oh, right. <laughs> you guys okay. have the Bank of England. We have the Federal Reserve. Yes. Interesting. Okay. And that's untouchable, whether left or right, because of the powers that be. Hey, did you hear much about, uh, did you get to hear any of what Mark Shaw was saying about JFK? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like Mark Shaw a lot. I, I think he does interesting work. And uh, there's a there's an aspect in his work that he doesn't even realize he's uncovered. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go on. Uh, Go which on. Is, uh, well, Dorothy Kilgallen and Marilyn being close uh, on that it's, it's been rumored for years that it was JFK who told Marilyn about UFO secrets. And those are the things that he said to Kilgallen. And everyone is so hung up on the, uh, you know, kind of Cuba-Soviet aspect or anti-Castro-Cubans when they look back. Um, a lot of that stuff is a cover story. And, you know, the real central piece in the JFK assassination is actually the UFO aerospace file. And wow. uh, that's that's the piece that's been missed uh, in my own work. I had the Watergate lawyer, Douglas Caddy, come on the program and he was the lawyer for the Watergate seven. And he was best friends with E. Howard Hunt, who was the top spy master in the JFK era. And before Hunt went off to prison for Watergate in private, uh, he talked to Caddy and, and, you know, Caddy said, what happened with the JFK thing? Why did the CIA assassinate President Kennedy? 
And he said, well, the CIA assassinated him because he had to be removed because he was about to give our most vital national security secret to the Russians. And he said, what, what do you mean? Why would he do that? What's the secret? And he said, the UFO file, the alien presence. So uh, that conversation is sitting there in history. Uh, and, you know, there's a major historical figure. So very often in the UFO field, you get these guys, I'm a whistleblower. I had an encounter. I saw something. This guy's a Watergate lawyer. Uh, so that's a lot different. So we have that historical heft of somebody saying that it was over the UFO file. When you dig back through that, you start to realize the UFO file is all around the JFK assassination. And like, you know, so when you get into like the mafia and the Cubans and things like that, I mean, Cubans uh, or the mafia can't change autopsy reports. You know, they, they can't uh, go into the government and have the, the ballistics changed. I mean, that's a totally different type of operation. So when we get into uh, people like the Cubans or the mafia, that's really, those are foot soldiers who are around the fringe. That has nothing to do with the actual case. And so that's the big kind of untouchable thing uh, when it comes to this. You see stories occasionally, there'll be little, you know, cause memos come out that JFK wanted all the UFO files 10 days before his assassination. And those are memos that are on record. So that's kind of where we're at. The, the problem is, the UFO secrecy is overlapped on the JFK assassination. So those two are really untouchable. And I think the nature of the problem that we have right now with the UFO file research is, you know, you see these hearings in America, but they don't touch on anything real. This is CIA disclosure. It's like a parody disclosure uh, that they want to build a threat narrative, which, which is totally different from actual disclosure, which is the kind of thing that President Kennedy was looking for. That's 1963. That's 58 years ago. And they're still hiding his records. <laughs> so think about that. Why are you going to hide somebody's yeah. records 58 years later? Because of the UFO stuff. So yes. w would you agree then, just to go almost off topic, but stay on topic, would you agree that maybe Marilyn Monroe was assassinated by the Kennedys, but then not agree that it was this Marcello gangster, Marcello, who, who killed Bobby Kennedy, that it was actually uh, the, the government to stop him spreading the UFO stuff? Um, the CIA assassinated both of the Kennedy brothers. Uh, so, you know, the CIA used the mafia. It came out in the 70s in the church committee uh, and in these Pike Commission and these different commissions that they did. They realized, oh, they used the mafia for hire. So you can always have mafia people around, but that's scenery, basically. I mean, the Central Intelligence Agency has assassination programs. Recently, before they grabbed Assange, uh, as you know, they wanted to assassinate him. And who did they send in for the job? The CIA. I mean, that's they're still doing it. And um, Kennedy, when he got into office, if you look at some of those early um, kind of briefings that he had, if you go back and you read what his aides were hearing from him, he was like, I can't believe the Central Intelligence Agency has the ability to go over to Laos, to go over to Vietnam and do these things on their own and that they have their own Air Force, you know. Uh, so he wanted to get that back under presidential control. But he also wanted the UFO file back under presidential control. And that's a really big problem for them. It still is. Why is it so important for the CIA to pre prevent the UFO files from getting out? What might happen if that falls into the wrong hands or if we were to find out the truth about it all? That's the real question. Uh, why are they hiding it? that hardcore. There's a good school of thought that says the National Security Act and the creation of the CIA was exactly because 
of the Roswell crash and exactly because of the early UFO incidents and the UFO wave that they created this thing where they could move all that information through these different government agencies. Um, certainly they have a lot to do with it, but it has something to do with the CIA on one side and the aerospace corridor, that defense contractor piece of Lockheed Martin and Boeing. So they've been involved for a long time as kind of a, a separate pseudo government going right alongside the regular government. So you have an overt government up here ruling things, the president, the Congress and all that. And then you have the covert government and the way that that thing operates without the media being able to get at it is the excessive levels of secrecy. And, you know, in many cases, I'll tell you, as people that I know in journalism, if you want to make it, you have to make friends with the CIA because they have people all over the world. So if you want a real story on foreign policy, if you don't make friends with the CIA, they can make or break your career. And so therefore, those people are never going to turn on them and be like, you know, unless you get like a Glenn Greenwald or somebody like that, who's very aware of the, the nature of the situation. But the the ironclad grip of the Central Intelligence Agency on the media means you'll never get the truth on the UFO thing. And you'll certainly won't get the truth on the JFK assassination because they had decided this guy's too much of a threat. We need to remove him. And they don't, they're not going to out themselves. <laughs> they still have his records 58 years later. The records are mandated by Congress now in 1992. And they were mandated to come out 25 years later. That's 2017. And I was live streaming at the time because I thought the records are going to come out. And they blocked them at the last minute, October 26, 2017. And the reason was, oh, it's a national security issue. Well, what could be a national security issue? The Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. So they're still hiding something in those records. And actually, there is something valuable in those records. A lot of people said, well, you know, what are you going to get in records anyway? And I understand that. But um, recently, someone over here who's very popular on these different shows named Judge Andrew Napolitano. He does major media shows. And he's like a libertarian, uh, you know, I mean, Fox has had him on, uh, you know, so he does all these kind of mainstream shows. But he talked about a conversation he had with Trump when Trump didn't release all the files, which is a big thing, because Trump was like, oh, I'm going to release all this. And he said, no, you know, Trump said to me in this conversation, I can't release that stuff. You don't understand. If you knew what was in there, you wouldn't release it either. So whatever it is in those JFK files is absolutely explosive. My guess, it's a link directly to the UFO file. Surely Trump would release, because he'd love to release that stuff. I can imagine he'd get a real, you know, being the guy who released it all. And also, like, I guess where I get a bit sceptical, and, and, and I'm not sceptical about your, what you're saying, but just about the whole UFO thing, it's just that there's a huge world out there outside of the States where UFOs might have landed. I mean, this, we talk about the Soviets. I mean, that's a huge amount of land, isn't it? It'd be larger than the US, oh, yeah. I think. It's like the biggest country in the world or something, one of them. Um, it must have been, if, if UFOs were landing in the States, it's just as likely they would have been landing in Russia or in uh, the UK or El Salvador, for that matter, or Chile or wherever it might be. So are all these countries conspiring together to prevent people from knowing? And how many people then are in on this secret? Surely it would have been outed by now. Um, well, for example, in the Soviet Union, you had the Voronezh case just before they broke up uh, the Soviet Union. That's 89. And uh, in, in that case, that's a major report for media. Nightline had it on. Uh, 
And that's a case of two ships landing in a park and 300 witnesses, including children, uh, seeing it and them calling out the police to try to get the aliens, <laughs> you know, and take them to, to jail. I mean, that's pretty major. So those stories have been there. The question is, what's the incentive, for example, uh, for somebody to call this out? So if I'm China, why should I call out what I have on the UFO file when the United States keeps it a super secret? Or if I'm Russia, why am I going to reveal the technology that I've recovered? I might, you know, in the case of Russia, I'd say they're neck and neck with us, if not superior on UFO recovery. So I don't think there's any incentive for them to say anything. The other thing is that the Central Intelligence Agency has made it their central tenet of secrecy co-intelligence is lying to the public in order to get them to believe something else. That's what you do with your enemies overseas. You know, that's been going on since World War II. And Hitler, we didn't want him to think we were going to land in Normandy, so we kept giving him this false story we were landing somewhere else. And that's the nature of co-intelligence, um, counterintelligence. So when you get to that point, that's what they're good at. So the Central Intelligence Agency are professional liars. So whenever you get around the UFO file, you know, they can dance on either side of that line. Right now they're saying, oh, there's something in our space. It's a threat. We need more money to study it. Uh, yeah. But five years ago. Oh, I was just going to say. The yeah, I was just going to say one of their earliest. Go oh, go ahead. One of their <laughs> earliest <laughs> tweets. <laughs> That's called intercontinental uh, delay. <laughs> uh, one of their earliest tweets was, remember all those sh uh, UFOs you were seeing in the skies in the 50s, 60s and 70s? That was us. Yeah. We did it. Right. So then back then they were saying five years ago that they had done the whole UFO wave. It was them and there are no aliens. Now their thing is, oh, there's a threat out there. You know, we stole 30 trillion dollars of your money and we were fighting aliens. So just forget about it. <laughs> mm. The thing you I was going to say, the thing you're saying about Hitler and the government lying to us because they're professionals in secrets and co-conspiratorial stuff. Um, that's really interesting because it, it plays on something we talked about last week on this show because we had somebody on who was a former spy, Andrew Bustamante, who was saying that it's not necessarily a bad thing that the government do these kinds of secret things and that the public aren't allowed to know about them and that we're not privy to these secrets because, um, you know, look at the good that came from that particular um, tactic against the Germans, so against the Nazis, I should say. So is it sometimes right and I know that's not a popular thing to say on this channel, but I'm just thinking out loud. Is it sometimes right that the government keep secrets from us? Well, it's the extent of the secrecy of what it's for. And not if it's operating as an independent government of its own, which is beyond the reach of the average citizen. Uh, that's different. So, And also, in the case of counterintelligence, that's supposed to be not against your own citizens. That's against other countries you know, to keep them in the dark about the things that you're doing. So to use that on the American public is actually a, a major betrayal because they're set up to be part of the defense of the United States. The interesting thing is also that the Central Intelligence Agency, this is not often talked about, they're an extra constitutional agency. So in fact, their entire existence is illegal. <laughs> so is the Department of Homeland Security. Department of Homeland Security has a quarter of a million employees. The CIA has their own Air Force, but technically they shouldn't exist because uh, in the Constitution, you're set up for the defense of the United States, and you set up a military to do that. So having an independent branch, uh, you know, this is when Truman set up the Central Intelligence Agency. After the Kennedy assassination, he said, look, you know, either 
mend it or end it, reform that agency or get rid of it. It was never meant to go over and be overthrowing governments and blowing up trains and fixing elections. So the Central Intelligence Agency is a core problem. It's a growing problem. They're in the media. They're in this UFO uh, threat piece. The, you know, the whole thing with Assange and assassination, look at what they've done in Ukraine. In Ukraine, a few people inside the Central Intelligence Agency could get you into a nuclear war. So again, it all depends. You know, there has to be oversight in relation to these things. Of course, there's a certain amount of secrecy in relation to nukes and other things that are expected from the public. But when you get to this level, um, you know, then it's a totally different story. What about the secret space program? Well, this is crucial because it, this is very easy. Think about this. In 1972 was the last time we went to the moon, a manned mission. Now, we're 50 years later. Why haven't they gone back with a manned mission to the moon? This is the first question you ask. And what happened in between? So we had shuttles, unmanned probes, and all the rest of it. But what happened to the manned space program? Well, it's interesting because uh, there's a guy in the UK who the United States wanted to get very badly named Gary McKinnon. And he had hacked into NASA and uh, he basically wanted information on UFOs and thought, maybe I can get in here. And he found that he could. Oh, yes. And you remember this guy? You're familiar with the story? Yes, that's right. Yes, go on. A very was interesting he, guy. Well, sorry, was uh, he maybe just autistic or something? I don't mean to yes. say the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They, they did, and uh, it's Asperger's is what they said that he had, which is why they weren't able to extradite him. But you'll find that he comes up uh, in a press conference when Obama went over to the UK with Cameron. And so they discussed the matter of extraditing Gary McKinnon for hacking into NASA. Well, what did Gary McKinnon say when he went looking for UFOs at NASA? It's pretty interesting. What he found were off-world officer lists lists of an entire different military that dealt with off-world things. So they've been building, the suggestion is the secret space program, they've been building a force over the course of that 50 years. And that's why you've had money disappearing out of the back of the government, what they call the missing trillions or the missing money. Um, that's building a major uh, infrastructure in space and it's all been done in secret. And now who's ready to cash in on that stuff? Uh, that's where you get Bezos, that's where you get Elon Musk, and those guys, you know, are rolling right into a pre-made space infrastructure. That's a space program that's been built over 50 years with our money. So uh, we haven't had any access to that. And where, where are all the missions from 1972 to 2022? They don't exist. I suppose a skeptic then might say if somebody like Trump or somebody like Elon Musk along with many, many other people, knew about this secret space program, they would, it would be out there in a second. Musk can't, can't keep quiet for a minute, can he, before tweeting everything out? Well, he can't do anything out in space without the permission of the government. Nothing, literally. Mm. If they're against him, he can't do anything. If the Central Intelligence Agency thought Musk were any kind of threat to their secrecy, he would have been washed up in a sex scandal five years ago. That would have been it. So, no, when you get on that level... Uh, you get briefed in that this is a national security area. So what they've done with space, and it's interesting with Trump, because you can see how they try to move the UFO file back under the purview from intelligence to the executive branch, and the Space Force was his attempt. Well, if I have a branch that's actually dedicated to space, then I'll be able to collect all the UFO info 
and bring that under the umbrella of the executive branch. They lost that ability. If you track the story back Eisenhower into JFK, that was the fight over the UFO file or what I call the war over the UFO file. It took place then. We're still looking at that in those congressional hearings now. But fundamentally what happened is they decided, you know what? We're going to move this out of the government into corporations like Lockheed and Boeing. And then when people do FOIA requests or investigations, they won't be able to touch it because it's not part of the government. So eventually that group with the CIA were just like, we have the technology, we have the research, you guys have a good time. <laughs> and uh, ever since, I mean, you have attempts, even Reagan with Star Wars, there's an attempt to get that uh, back. So you have to look at the history in a way that's understandable. When you think about Trump and his gruff demeanor and wanting to get this stuff out, he said a few things, really, that indicated um, he wanted to go deep on the UFO file. But he can't, just like any of these guys, can't come out and say, yes, <laughs> you know, we have the wreckage and we have this stuff because they're busy trying to get that back from this shadowy corridor of defense contractors between the Central Intelligence Agency and uh, the aerospace companies. That's the corridor that's not, no one gets at that. You know, even when we talk about the JFK thing, it's loaded with that. Oswald, uh, one of the things he claimed to his fellow employees, he was going to work for NASA. You never hear about that. You always hear about Oswald, oh, the Cubans or whatever. <laughs> uh, no, he, he was around NASA. When he, he worked for Guy Bannister, who was a right winger. So that's weird too. I mean, he's supposed to be a left-wing communist. Yeah. And But Bannister, if you go further enough back in his own career, he started the X-Files at the FBI. He did, you can find little newspaper reports of him checking out uh, UFO reports and saucer reports, you know, in newspapers. So hmm. Guy Bannister then becomes Oswald's employee. So everywhere you go around the JFK thing, the UFO file is in your face. And that's yeah. the secret piece with the assassination. That's the reason they don't let the records out. That's interesting. So I guess what we're learning here is that UFO stuff is actually supersedes the Cuban stuff in terms of uh, a sort of hierarchy of secrets. And I mean, it's an exciting thought, isn't it? The, the secret space program, isn't that a really exciting thought? I would love, because I get the idea, I guess what that makes me feel, and maybe it's what makes the viewers feel, uh, one day that you'll open the newspaper and there'll be loads about, yeah, all right, we admit it, we've got this big base out on like planet whatever a few light years <laughs> away and there are or aliens and stuff like that. I mean, what's the most exciting thing you think of when you think of the secret space program? Um, well, it's, it's incredibly suppressed. All right. So the things that they've found in relation to, uh, you know, there's a lot of reports that on the moon, they found ruins. So hmm. that's a problem right away. What do you do if in the late sixties you find ruins on the moon <laughs> yeah. uh, and you have a whole culture that's set up to think, oh, culture started in Samaria in 6000 BC. I mean, it is, you know, it's a pretty big conundrum. They actually did a study on it for the Brookings Institute in the 60s. And they said, what would be the impact of ET life, the discovery of ET life? And uh, they decided it would upend religious institutions, destroy the economy, etc. So they've always been very careful when they've done studies along this line. But um, I think that they know a lot more about space. They have a lot more. Let's go back to McKinnon for a minute. If his off-world officers lists, if that's why they wanted him so badly. So what does that mm -hmm. suggest? It not only suggests 
you're sending probes out that are getting all this information. You've got a whole group of people who are 50 years ahead in terms of their space understanding. They've been out there. They've adjusted. Um, you know, they were talking about, oh, we're going to send the first woman into space. Do you really think <laughs> that they haven't sent a woman into space? I mean, you know, with the exception of the Soviets, uh, you know, the Americans definitely have already done this. And mm. it is interesting. If you look at the timeline, when Trump was in, they had Pence saying, we're going back to the moon 2024. And then as soon as Biden gets in, it's no, no, it's not 2024, maybe 2028 or 2030. So they moved all of that around. So you can see these two groups grappling, trying to get a handle on the situation. But really, fundamentally, you look at it and you say, they stopped going to the moon. They were well-funded. They'd already funded trips uh, further out to the moon past 72. So under Nixon was the last manned mission. So what do you do with 50 years in between? That's where the secret uh, space program is. It's fascinating, really fascinating. And we're running out of time. Uh, do tell us where, where do you want people to go and find you and give you some love? <laughs> uh, darkjournalist.com uh, and Dark Journalist on YouTube. And uh, the documentary up there is X Protect UFO File Aerospace Assassinations. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so yeah, much for with coming you. on. Oh, yeah. it was brilliant. Yeah. And you have a lovely day. Have a good one, Andrew. I've cut you, cut you off. But thank you very, very much. That was great. Really, really interesting. What an exciting idea of these far-flung universes and UFOs and things that are being kept, kept secret from us. All the bloody secrets. Um, I'm going to go off in a minute. Just to remind you, if you've just joined us, Sean is away doing podcast stuff. He's filming all these podcasts for our own delight and for our own uh, use and enjoyment. It's going to be really, really good. Um, I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll be joining you again on Patreon in an hour i you know go come and have a look at my little podcast on the edge with andrew gold lots of similar stuff to what's on here it's on the audio podcast spotify and apple and all that stuff and it's on youtube as well come subscribe tell me that uh sean just brought you here even though it was me bringing you here from sean's channel i'm gonna bring on mr stephen knight just now I believe he is ready. Yep, you just put your clothes back on again. There you are. How are you doing? Half, half of the clothes. Um, <laughs> I'm only half committed to the clothes thing. Yeah, the top half's back on, but that's all that matters on this. Actually, yeah, the important half. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys could see a stream of the lower parts of our bodies, you would never want to see this channel again. I think that might so. constitute a hate crime. <laughs> so uh, again just just again in case you're just joining us Stephen Knight is from the Godless Spellchecker podcast it's also on YouTube as the Night Tube he's the best there is are you the best there is you're the best there is aren't you I think that's factual <laughs> it's factual and what I'm gonna <laughs> we'll do... find out we will really will find out won't we <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna bring on in, well he's just taking his headphones off so I might not just yet I was going to bring on MK Davis to, to speak with you but um I don't know if he's he's got his little headphones off now in the back in the green room, so I won't do it quite yet. Um, aliens and stuff, Stephen. Exciting stuff to think about. Well, I'm kind of in two camps on this one because I spent a lot of my teenage years embedded in this sort of stuff. I found it fascinating, you know, campfire fodder, heavy into my X-Files. Uh, I like how it sort of inspires the imagination. Then, obviously, adulthood happened and I became a massive cynical sceptic that doesn't believe anything <laughs> I'm not even sure we're here right yeah. now, to be fair. We're so we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll be turned around by our guests. It would be. All I know about aliens is it would be really, really exciting. 
if it were all true. Mm. Um, everybody, do do click on like on the thing because I think it makes the video get more viral and stuff, and it makes Uncle Sean, uh, Grandpa Sean Atwood, <laughs> Uncle Sean, Uncle Sean, I'll go with Uncle to not offend him, <laughs> Sean Atwood, very happy. Click on the like and stuff. I'll see you on the Patreon later. I'll leave Stephen to talk to MK Davis, who I, I think he's still fiddling with his headphones, but I'm just going to just bring him on and see what happens. Hello? Hello. Right, I'm going to leave you with Stephen now. Stephen, you can introduce MK and all that stuff and um, see you all in a bit. Thank you, sir. So for our next guest, this show will be revisiting the Bigfoot uh, phenomenon. Uh, MK Davis is joining us, as you can see on your screen now. Uh, he's well known by Bigfoot researchers for his analysis of the famous Patterson-Gimlin now, the Patterson-Gimlin film is an American short motion picture of an unidentified subject that the filmmakers have said was a Bigfoot. Uh, the footage was shot in 1967 in Northern California and has since been subjected to many attempts to authenticate it and debunk it. It's become somewhat iconic, that film. I think you'd instantly recognise it. I believe it's been homaged in sort of uh, movies like Zack Snyder's Just uh, Watchmen, even, uh, maybe M. Night Shyamalan's uh, Signs. Uh, so, M.K. Davis, how are you, sir? Well, I'm doing just fine. Can you hear me good? I can hear you loud and clear, sir. So I believe you've dedicated a, a large chunk of your life to researching and tracking down the, uh, the the mythical creature known as Bigfoot. Is that correct? Well, I, you know, for a long time, I denied any of that. Uh, I kind of backed into the Bigfoot field. I was into astrophotography. Uh, I was taking space pictures, you know, through a telescope. How and that was kind of my thing. from that to Bigfoot? Where's the, where's the leap there? What happened? Well, it, it kind of happened uh, kind of by accident. Um, you know, uh, back in the mid-90s when the internet became kind of uh, the thing, uh, they, they're leaked out two really good frames from the Patterson Bigfoot film. Uh, and they were so far and above what you normally saw, you know, the dark, grainy, shaky versions of the film that I, I knew enough about photography through my pursuit in astrophotography that, that you, you can't get images like that from a, from a bad film, that there had to be a really good version of that film somewhere that they came off of. So I began an inquiry just to curiosity. Uh, and the inquiry continues to this day, but I, I've amassed uh, probably some of the best images from that film anywhere. Uh, so, so, you know, it's, uh, it's been uh, a 25 year plus year journey of, uh, of in in inquiring you know uh, uh trying to get the best frames from it and i figured i felt like that that if i got those all those real good images that the film would tell its own story and that you would not need uh anyone to vouch for it or anything like that and i think that it largely has well what in your opinion does that film show in any objective manner well, it's it shows um, uh, an upright walking individual that is quite apparently female. 
and it shows it in broad daylight uh, with the with a, a good sun angle on it, and it's so, taken with. Go ahead. Sorry, just to pick up on that point because many of the viewers and listeners would always uh, associate you know masculinity with the urban legend of Bigfoot. But now you're saying uh, it presents as, as female. Now is this? some sort of uh, gait, some sort of hip to waist ratio. What kind of things are you looking at to make that determination? Mm-hmm. No, the mammary glands. Right. It's, it's got print, very, very obvious mammary glands. Uh, you get, you look at those really high quality images from the film and, and you not only can see them, but you can see them move and swing pendulously. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not much dispute about whether it's male or female. Okay. So, th- I mean, I did not think I'd be talking about Bigfoot today. It's this wonderful piece of Americana to me, the kind of thing you'd sit around a campfire and talk about. But as I've become a bit older, it sort of went in the same basket as sort of the Loch Ness Monster. Fa- fairies at the bottom of the garden, a mermaids, things like that. You know, great stories to tell, something that could fire up the imagination of people. Uh, but you are committed to this idea that Bigfoot is not only real, uh, but it's something you may actually prove uh, as real one day uh, without any question. Well, to be honest with you, the film should have sufficed for that. Uh, up until up until I came along and, and, and began my inquiry into the better images of the film, all anyone ever saw of it was like a third or fourth generation copy that was uh, just, uh, you know, when you copy something that's a positive, when you copy positive to positive, you build contrast. So you end up with this almost a silhouette for the, for the film subject. And then uh, the, the, the sandbar becomes totally white. Uh, and, and everything is just, you know, just uh extreme uh, and so uh it, it's not surprising to me that that's what that's what people remembered about the film and when they when they you see some of the better stuff that's on some of my my uh, web pages uh it's a whole different film that's that's interesting and I, I respect the idea of seeing is believing to an extent and you'd certainly want to take videos and use that as evidence of, of certain phenomena but, but in the video we seem to see a very sort of um grainy bipedal figure moving as you've identified as female and i know you've done a lot of work to make that clearer but how have we ruled out the possibility of a human being in a suit or, or some sort of hoax the possibility uh whether well, there's always a possibility how but about the probability the probability is pretty low. Uh, it, it would be very hard to difficult to uh, uh, assemble a, uh, a suit that would mimic the the breast movement. You know, they they if you time the breast movement with the steps, they they lag behind about maybe a half a second, and then they follow. And when they follow, it's it's. It's very obvious that they are at least the density of water. Um, back in 1967, the best they had was probably Planet of the Apes. And uh, so, you know, it's this is too far and above 
uh, you know, you see, you can, on the back, you can see the muscles moving. You can see the scapula under the skin move back and forth, just like that. Um, that those are things that you recognize in your daily life when you see biomechanically observe another human being. You see the muscles move. You see the, uh, and, and it's not nearly as hairy as, as people once thought. Once you get those good images, you see that it's, it's just hair, lightly haired over. Uh, it's got some patches that are heavier, some patches that are nothing but skin. Uh, it's, it's, it's just very surprising how much better the original film was. So by your estimation, then, how, how, where does this creature fall? I mean, it sounds like it has a lot of typical ape traits that you've mentioned in terms of the, you know, evolution and, uh, you know, common ancestry. Where would you say it falls in? In, in my estimation, in, in course, you know, there's no one person has all the expertise, you know, uh, but from what I've been able to gather from my years of working on the film and and uh, that it's it's some kind of early human. That's still alive in that rugged country, uh, what they call a hominin. Um Hominin ending with the letter N means that it does not include Homo sapien. Uh, it's it's uh, it's where they find the skulls here and there, you know, around the world uh, in different types. You know, Homo erectus, Australopithecus, uh, Peking man. You know, uh, they're all different types of hominins. They're not us. She's uh, she's massive. She probably weighs a thousand pounds. So that's that's a very big mammal, presumably. Why why are we not finding remains of these creatures all the time in in the areas of their sightings? Well, they do they do find them. They just don't know what they have. Uh, they they found one, a skull. Some Boy Scouts were up in those same areas uh, in California. And they had a mule, pack mule, go through a, a mud hole, and it kicked up a skull with its hoofs. And it was very much like what you see on that film, you know, with the brow ridges and the sloped back forehead and all of that big, massive jaw. Uh, they sent it off to, a, to a, one of the universities, I think a University of California. And now they don't know where it is, you know, but they have pictures of it. The people who, who uh, found it took pictures, you know, so you see that kind of a repeated over and over when people find something that's something that's, that they can't really figure out. They, they're a little afraid of it. Uh, they found a skull in a sink in outside of uh, Lovelock, Nevada, uh, during a dig, during an archaeological dig, and it was so outstandingly different that they one one university passed it off to another university. The California gave it to Utah. Utah did a study on it. They commissioned a study 
you know, they fill the cranium with bird seeds and measure the volume and all of that. And they, they said this was something really unusual and odd. They, uh, they ended up not publishing the study. And uh, Scribd, a company, came by. Uh, this was in recent years. And they, they had, what they would do is get old unpublished works and then they would publish them and charge money, you know, if you wanted them. And they charge a fee. And they published it. And I saw it. And I, I copied every bit of it, all, the, all the, the, the images of it, all the data. And then uh, I published the fact that it was out there. Uh, and uh, their, their article was, an unusual skull found near Lovelock, Nevada. And, you know, they took that thing down pronto. I mean, they, they took it down. Why, why would they take, why would they take that down in your view? Oh, I, I don't know. I think they're afraid of it. Uh, I think they're afraid that it kind of shifts paradigms a little bit. Wouldn't they, wouldn't uh, they get awards though for, for proving the existence of a new species? Surely that's something science uh, and peer review would, would celebrate. That's a Nobel Nobel Prize, surely. Well, you and I would. But well, when it comes to to people who have already published works and and their works have made it into the lexicons of well, the in into into textbooks. Uh they are they're afraid of it they're afraid of this it's so different that the, there was this lady down in mexico uh, uh i forgot her julia steen mcintyre i believe it was she found uh, artifacts down there that they they had positively identified as two hundred forty thousand years old and they ran her out of the business i mean they 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 went and and backfilled the site in and they won't allow anyone else to dig there. Uh, the, the Kennewick man, they found, uh, they said he was what 10,000 years old and he, furthermore, he wasn't native American. He was some other race. They found him in the Columbia river and the government went in there and poured riprap onto where the, the site, they found him underwater along the edge of the river and they completely filled it in with concrete and riprap where no one else could go in there and dig or look. And okay. uh, they will not, they won't let anyone else look at the Kennewick man. You who, can go up there and request it all day long and they won't let you look. Who's, who's they? Uh, that's the people up in uh, Washington. I think it's Washington university up there. They have it. So, I mean, uh, I suppose is your feeling that there's a concerted effort to suppress a truth they know to be genuine or uh, are they concerned? I, I, about do, I do think that. Uh, I don't think it's without cause. Uh, you know, they've they've demonstrated and I say they it, it, different people may occupy that that term. Um, they just. It's it's uh, when it comes to the human race that our academics are very sensitive about it. Uh, they, 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 they kind of feel comfortable with the way things are now, showing a stair step 
evolution from primitive to more advanced. And, and when they find something that's outside those norms, they, they have a hard time with it. Uh, and and if, if you've ever asked anyone who's been in that field, uh, you can have some real problems uh, when you're with your career. Uh, as, as it was in my case, I wasn't in that field. So, uh, you know, I, I just uh, was an interested person. The film, the Patterson film, uh, is probably about a 99% chance of being authentic i um, would i would um so yeah that's that's fascinating to me because obviously we have a film and i would i would agree i suppose it seems to me it's very easy to agree it's authentic in the sense that it captures something i suppose it's a whole new level in terms of probability when you try and invoke sort of new species i mean is your feeling that this species is still alive could it have died out in the 60s do we have anything other than this film to sort of uh, produce any sort of light on the matter i've been there probably 20 times to that film site i've been up and down the ridges on either side of it um back in 1968 not 68 uh, 2008 i'm sorry um a, a couple of friends of mine we went up up onto the mountain behind the film site and we walked way up there and I came down ahead of them. Uh, they were having foot problems and they had taken their boots off and were cleaning their feet. And I came on down, I crossed the Creek at the bottom and came down the other side and it came back out into the Creek. And I just waited there. I was going to film them when they came down and I filmed downstream and I filmed upstream and I had no idea that I had anything on my video. Uh, it was seven years later that I found it. Uh, it was an individual crouched down beside the stream with a piece of cloth in his hands, uh, like a something that the firefighters had dropped. You know, they have frequent fires in there. Right. And it, it was... Uh, for all, you know, it was a Bigfoot. I mean, there's no clothes on it. It was all mono covered in hair, but it was in dark shade. And I was looking through my viewfinder, you know, the little small at that time. Uh, so I didn't even see it. But when I was reviewing the tape for another reason, I saw the, the white cloth move and i say white it could have been just light colored but it it moved and i stopped and back it up and did a frame by frame and this was within maybe a quarter mile of the patterson film site how is it that a creature so large um and has such a huge presence and actively has people such as yourself trying to trying to locate it seek it out how is it able to evade close encounters with, with human beings what, i mean does it does it live underground in your view would it live in the trees would they make some sort of construct some sort of abode how would it work if you if you got the really good frames to look at 
uh, in the early part of the filming of the Patterson film, he's cr he crosses the creek and he he's behind an embankment kind of looking up at her. And he's just, he's literally shining and putting the camera. Uh, excuse me. It's okay. Directly on uh, her rear end. And you can see that she has worn all the hair off her rear end uh, on the inside of the cheeks. So I, I know from that that she has spent a good deal of time sitting down. Uh, Could it not just that, be where they step into the costume? Possibly so, but they must have, they would have had to spend a lot of time in the costume to, to do that. Sure. The cheek. Um, it, if you could see, I, I'm not at home, so I, I would show you otherwise. Uh, if you if you do a little research into that area, it's the area between there and Mount Shasta is riddled with lava tubes. So it, it kind of points toward a life underground predominantly, you know, with, with uh, forays, you know, out into the open, but uh, mostly underground, uh, under overhangs and uh, in, in lava tubes, things like that. And that's what I believe. I believe that they're largely that way. Is there some sort of intelligence then or awareness of the outside world, do you think? Because we, we do live in a, a sort of culture and society now where anything that seems to happen at any point ever is captured on some sort of CCTV camera, some sort of satellite imagery. It seems like there is nowhere anything can be hidden given the, the technological advances and, uh, you know, disregard for general privacy human beings have, how is it that these creatures, I mean, have managed to evade all that since the 60s in any sort of clear way, do you think? Well, uh, if, you, if you ever used your own home camera or your phone for that matter, whenever you zoom, your field of view closes in. And so if you can imagine zooming in on a specific target with a satellite, your field of view drops to almost nothing. If you don't know exactly where it is, if you don't have pinpoint coordinates, you're, you're, you can be all around it and not ever see it. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it would be an easy thing to do. And you hear people talk about, well, they can read a car tag or, or they can uh, see what you're eating for lunch out on your picnic table. Uh, that's true if they knew exactly where your picnic table was. But if they, if they had to come in and say, find the picnic table in this town, in this state, and tell me what they're having for lunch today, they couldn't do it. They couldn't locate it. So in a sense, I, I really admire your dedication to this. 20 years, you obviously took a deep dive into it. I suppose my question would be for you is what would be the moment or what could be the moment where you would decide, actually, I don't think this is worth dedicating my time to. Is there something that you could find or something that could happen that would make you change your mind about the existence of this creature? Well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people have, you know, down through the years, I have, I've had uh, lots of, of really 
convincing skeptics approach me about that very same thing. And, uh, and I can only say that if someone else would have to come forward with, with irrefutably, there've been people who've came forward. There's been nine different people claiming to be the man in the suit in the Patterson film. Right. You know, they're not all in there, obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but, uh, as long as that film was shaky and was grainy and dark, people could claim anything they wanted to claim about it. But when you see the original images, you have—it's a huge stretch. It's easier to believe it's real. Uh, you how, see too many things going on. How how would you feel if somebody beat you to the chase? Uh, and actually confirmed Bigfoot, would that be something you'd celebrate? Would it be something you'd be quite resentful about? How would you feel? I would absolutely celebrate it. It, it does not have to be me uh, by any means. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, when you're talking about celebrating it, uh, it's probably just going to uh, open up another can of worms. You know, once you get past that point, you got to get past the point. Does it exist to, to move on to what is it? And uh, it's, it's kind of a stair step type of process, but uh, whatever people are doing to try to get to that point, I always appreciate and I will help anybody I can. I will throw data at them. I will provide them with images. I will tell them where to, where I've been, uh, to see and you know if we can move this thing forward somewhat um and and try to get academia to look at it again they're looking at ufos and they need to take a look at this also same the last thing they'll ask you is i mean it's a very i mean it seems to me living across the pond very esoteric and you know sort of specialized interest how do people respond when you tell them this is what you're dedicating your time to do you find people are very open and interesting can you find people can be slightly mocking and dismissive what's the typical attitude man for the most part people are interested uh there's been you know i've i've been friends with some of the hardcore skeptics uh that people that actually make their living you know being a skeptic uh, benjamin bradford he's a rights for skeptical inquirer uh he, he doesn't believe the patterson film and we're still friends. You know, it's it's not it's not anything that's going to. Uh, I believe in in human beings first. You know, and, and the Bigfoot can coming or go. Uh, if it's real, it will come eventually. Uh, that film the Patterson took was an outstanding piece of footage. It is why Bigfoot even is considered now. Uh, that film, that that one piece of evidence. Without it, it would be a, a very, very uh, scant uh, uh, evidence field. That's fascinating. So I suppose the last thing I'll ask you then, if, if you want to point people towards the most compelling artifacts for the existence of Bigfoot, where would you point people towards? Where, where can people find more of your output on the issue? Well, there's there's several several... Foot, uh, pieces of footage that I consider to be, you know, just 
right behind the Patterson film. One of them is the Paul Freeman footage that was taken in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, back in the mid nineties, uh, pretty close range. Uh, it's real good stuff. Uh, and, and there's a, a whole, uh, series of videos that came out of East Texas, uh, back in the early 2000s uh there were people were researching in there and had habituated or or conditioned some bigfoot uh to to come out and so it was uh very very good stuff there but if you want to see uh some good stuff on the patterson film and other things go to my uh my uh web blog and it's uh the davis report dot wordpress.com and okay. just just explore that i put some of the best stuff up there all right mr david well this has been fascinating i uh i wish you all the best i, I really find your uh, positive positive attitude towards it quite infectious uh and you know whether you believe or not there, there is a certain element of, of fun to it for sure so thank you very much well for yeah it, it, it is it is, it is, it's not just fun, but it's uh, anticipation. You know, you're kind of looking for something uh, really good to happen, you know, so you're not, you're not without an expectation or of a, some kind of reward for your efforts. You know, it, it can happen. That's wonderful. Thank you very much and, and have a pleasant afternoon. Thank you. Take care. Well, that was M.K. Davis there uh, outlining his 20 years dedication to tracking down Bigfoot. I'm sure you can agree. Uh, he was a lovely guy. I, I actually enjoyed uh, speaking to him about that. Not entirely what I expected. Uh, we have another f fascinating guest for you next. Uh, we'll be joined by YouTuber and Dogman Encounters host Jeffrey Nadolny. Now, Jeffrey's YouTube channel has amassed over 30,000 subscribers who tune in to listen to stories about strange encounters and these deep dives into bizarre theories, as well as government cover-ups. So there's plenty to talk about there. Uh, straight from straight from Bigfoot to Jeff. Jeff, good evening, sir. How are you? Stephen, how are you? Nice to I'm wonderful. On. Thank you very much. Let's look at that wonderful piece of art there behind you for our for our viewers who can see. What, what am I looking at there? Yeah. A subscriber painted that for me and uh, sent it to me. Can you hear me? Excellent. Well, please do tell I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Yep. That's great. That's great. Slight delay, but I'm, I'm sure we'll manage to work through it. Uh, so maybe you can just take a moment, Jeff, just to tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel. What does it focus on? Um. Well, I started out my channel on pretty much cryptid encounters, reptilian, uh, Bigfoot, dog man and just like narrating encounters and then i started to kind of get fast more fascinated with the um the whole community and i started to see things that were happening in the community uh people being attacked um a lot of just you know the disappearances in national parks And it really fascinated me. Um, I stayed in the field of narrating and interviewing people with their encounters. Um, but then I started to investigate these animal attacks, quote, animal attacks, um, 
there's there's one that just happened last year and to me it it's a cover-up because it happened in tennessee in uh cock county tennessee and april 1st there was a gentleman attacked and um tony aarons was his name he was found pretty much dismembered uh on Jimtown Road. Well, at midnight, someone had spoken to him at 9:30 in the at, at night, 3 hours prior and he was fine. So this guy miraculously gets shredded like his soft tissue and his stomach just his froze legs, up a little bit arms. there right at the good stuff from the sounds of it. Can you hear me Jeff? Are you back with us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I Excellent. I think I think the last word I may have heard there was shredded. So please don't. Yeah, well, keep this Tony Aaron's guy was he was supposedly he lived in a homeless uh, encampment at the end of this road called Jimtown Road, and it's a very rural area, um, and it's it's poor a very poor community down there. Good people, but not a lot of money. Um, so this guy is found his his leg is pretty much hanging off his arm uh his soft stomach tissue is torn up and he, he's a guy named uh charles owensby finds him and calls 911. well they kind of dismiss it as a dog attack um even though there's no proof of any dogs down on a dirt road and scuff marks this and that um then in july they kind of just they they do like a two-page write-up on it in the media and i'm like that's weird you know like there's no there's no closure to it so then in july a girl named amber miller was attacked in the same location literally same location jimtown road um and she was found by a good Samaritan who happened to be driving down the road. There were three dogs that were with her. They were licking her wounds. They weren't biting her. They were licking her. And she had uh, was brought to the hospital. She, she herself was torn apart, arms, legs. Um, it was a very, very vile and grotesque attack. Uh, she ended up dying in the hospital. Well, they said that you know these dogs were because there was dna evidence on the dogs where the blood that they had been licking if this good samaritan was able to walk up and save this girl anybody who has had dogs and have you know seen dog attacks or anything they know once a dog attacks somebody it's not going to stop you know it's not going to stop biting and tearing it's then then start licking this girl um and then if this guy comes in and tries to stop it they're going to attack him as well well that didn't happen they just kind of parted way let the guy take the girl put her in the truck and bring her to the hospital um so she passes away and then the guy named charles owensby is labeled the culprit of it you know, um, they pretty much slandered him. Uh, he was uh, a black gentleman. 
poor and you know they 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 um they ended up putting a warrant out for uh to search evidence for for his house and his ex-wife's house which is like five miles down the road um they they incarcerate him for a minor bit of marijuana and in america i mean it was anywhere between i think it was like less than a half an ounce of weed so i mean that's in america nowadays it's nothing you know it's that's a slap on the wrist he shouldn't have been incarcerated they incarcerate him and they do a, a really uh thorough investigation on this guy they <laughs> take his dog they dig up a, a dog that had been dead for like six months you know to get dna from the, a dog that had been dead during the attacks you know um so then they release him on a thousand dollar bond and they pretty much just responsible he's responsible well there's no evidence of him being responsible and and i'm looking at this and i'm like this is weird you know these dogs didn't do this obviously and i start looking into it more and more um and then during Owensby's release, he's in his trailers, you know, um, <clears throat> and the public, not the public, but the community, like uh, community workers are hassling him. And one night he, there was a shot at his trailer. Someone had taken and shot a gun at his trailer. Well, he called the police department and said, hey, someone just shot at my trailer. And it would have been where he was lying down. Um, police came and did a, an investigation. They said, we can't find a shell casing. Um, bullet holes old. Well, how do they know the bullet holes old? Because they were prior. And anybody who goes to the rifle range or who is in, in law enforcement or anything knows that you know, if you're going to assassinate somebody, clean up your brass. That's what you pay. You pick up your brass. You don't leave evidence behind. So that, and that was a big okay. thing. So, just to interject, sir, what, what comes across very clear is obviously you do not buy the official narrative of dog attacks. No. I think you no. used, I think um, many of our viewers may have noticed you used air quotes early when you said animal attacks. So it's clear you're very skeptical, skeptical of it. You don't accept the official stories from the police. Uh, that sort of like invites the question what do you think it is what what do you think is responsible for I, these sort of attacks? i have a i have i like the guest prior i have been researching and uh looking into bigfoot and a kind of offshoot of a bigfoot people in america have seen and in in england um sure called the dog man um it's like a it's a hominid and it's uh it's a very violent creature um some people think that it's related to a bigfoot i think it possibly may be an offshoot or um something entirely different uh there was a, a subscriber of mine had taken his motorcycle down there and rode down and ended up talking to someone from that homeless encampment and um He's, you know, he's talking to him and the guy said, you know, 
had a decent conversation with him. And then he said, uh, yeah, be careful on your way out. He goes, these things will come out of the woods and take you off your motorcycle. He didn't say what, but almost like insinuating, hey, there's something out in these woods that will take you off of your motorcycle. Um, there had been large canine tracks in the dirt or dust or the first Tony Aaron's attack. And there's been multiple attacks like this uh, throughout our country. Um, and people have been seeing these creatures in these vicinities. And I think it, I think it is one of these creatures. I think there's multiple of them, just like I think there's multiple Bigfoot. Um, I think that the, to answer a question that you had asked the previous guest, I don't think people find these things because I think they're nocturnal and I think they travel at night and they have a broad area that they roam. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I think the is going on. That's a potential explanation. There's been a flurry of questions on this topic. People wanting to pick your brain on it. We have one from Easy E. Uh, they're asking, what do you think of the documentaries Hellier and Skinwalkers Ranch? I'm hoping that means more to you than me. Just in search of Skinwalker Ranch and stuff. Um, I think that that is, it's an amazing documentary. Um, Navajo lore is powerful. Uh, I, it's an unexplainable thing. I've talked about it on my channel before. You've got people claiming that there's portals, people claiming that there's these large canine um, military involvement. I, it's a, it's a, it's a very sacred place. A lot of Ute Native Americans were killed in that area by Navajo, and. Um, yeah, it's it's it, that that place is a mystery. You've got a location that said UFO, cryptid, and paranormal all in one one place. There's something special about it. What is the most compelling piece of evidence you may point people towards to help convince them that these aren't regular animal attacks? Um. If you look at me, the media, uh, JK, um, I think that was his name, the dark, dark journalist or whatever, he had said that the media works for big pharma, oil, military. We get 80% of our media from that, our, our news is from big bank, big pharma, oil, military, and they just kind of feed the media what they want to hear um and the media then paints a picture of what these companies these organizations not companies want them to paint so when i look at these attacks if there's if there's wording that's kind of off or let's say one of these like so this tony aaron's amber miller attack it's you got two people that have died um then they they start painting the victims as or less than you know they bring up drug addiction have victims why are you bringing up their past just because they had an addiction doesn't mean that they are any less than you know what i mean or deserve to to be attacked you know uh the sheriff of 
the Cock County, Tennessee, uh, Armando Fuentes, he, um, he had made a statement that said methamphetamine was the cause of Tony Aaron's death. And I was like, uh, so whatever, even, even if it was the dog that did it, let's say the dogs did it, the, the, the dogs smelled the meth on him and they, they wanted to get high off his blood or something, you know, it makes no sense. It's, it's a lot of BS in the wording. And, um, you know, I look at, I have people, I have interviewed probably 500 people who have claimed to have seen some sort of, of Bigfoot, Dogman, Reptilian is something. And it's not just just people, random people. Like I've had a sheriff from Louisiana come on and say he had seen a large like canine run across the road um he had no idea what it was he had to turn around and go back and look for it but by the time he had turned around it was gone and it kind of messed his whole night up you know so i mean i find it interesting what you you say about the media uh, as a whole and i i agree that it's possible uh, and often the case that many outlets have an agenda uh, and a bias and a sort of style uh, and line that they tow to. So I suppose what would be stopping some sort of alternative media outlet or some independent journalists from actually exposing this people who aren't beholden to sort of, you know, big farmer or people really are aware of it. You know, either they're not aware of it or they don't care. It's not something that they want to care about. You know, it's not, it's not money, you know, um, the world is the world revolves around money and it's not a large you know talking about random attacks and taking the time to really look at them you know i've got this is a file of all different attacks in america that don't make sense that are like that tony aaron's amber miller um and that that's hours and hours of in like researching it and then looking at the area to see if there had been any kind of strange sightings of, of any kind of strange creature, you know. Um, there was something that just happened in Virginia. Uh, Taswell County, Virginia is right next to Buchanan. And then right across the border is Mercer County, West Virginia. And they fit almost like a jigsaw. And there have been numerous accounts of people. See there have been eight deaths, eight weird disappearances and deaths in the last six months. Um, people had been, there was three guys that were found dead, uh, all the same age, which was kind of weird. I was like, that's really, a, you know, and in any kind of field, there really isn't coincidence, I don't think. Um, but one guy was found in a um, kind of one of those drainage tubes that go under the road, the culvert, and he had disappeared. The search and rescue went and looked for him like a year ago. And ironically enough, there's his body in this with another. And I had actually called the Taswell County, Virginia's uh, police department. And I said, you know, hey, how are you? My name is Jeff Nadalny. I'm an independent journalist. I'm just looking into this, this case. Um, 
and it was Richard Timmy was the guy's name. And I said, I, I had heard you found his body. And the guy, the sheriff said, yeah, the, yeah we, there was two bodies in the, in the culvert, da, 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 da. And there was no mention of a second body in any of the media. So there's just a lot of weird business going on with the media and the government. I think they work hand in hand to keep secrets away from us, not only with this, but, you know, with with UFOs, with assassinations, um, with a lot. And they work hand in hand together. What do you think of a story of a uh, beast of a beast uh, in land between the lakes? Is, is that a source of pain for former residents as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm friends with a gentleman who his name's Tim Baker. He worked for NASA back in the 70s and he had been researching on his own, just, you know, as a hobby, Bigfoot accounts. And he had been, uh, he grew up in like Alabama and like Muscle Shoals. So he's familiar with that kind of area. And um, there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation on that case. Uh, you've got a family of four that were supposedly torn up. Um, and the media never covered it. But you've got people that, you know, third party people coming and saying, I heard this. I was friends with these people. Um, and then people tend to add on to the stories. I, I believe that an, an attack did happen there. Um, it's been talked about for 40 years. It happened in like 1983 or four. No one knows the exact date. And that I believe is because of a cover up. Um, I had talking to somebody who knew a park ranger there and they had stated that yes, the attack did happen. Mother and father and the, bro the little boy were found in found like 15 feet in a tree um so so i mean this is um it's interesting it's very dark it, it involves you know real people real murder real loss and i i accept you are an individual who's interesting interested in pursuing the truth you want to find out what has happened i suppose on the flip side of that coin uh do you ever worry about the potential distress maybe caused to the the family of these victims if somebody's sort of challenging official narratives and saying there's more to this and potentially opening old old wounds uh, for these families as well. I I have. I There was a little boy named Corey Godsey in not Kentucky, not County Kentucky. And he was 13 years old and he was dragged up a three to 400 foot kind of rock side embankment and they claimed that it was a dog. We're talking 120. 120 pound boy dragged up a, a cliff which is very um there was a lot of people were there any witnesses to this or is this something they pieced together no, afterwards no no they found they he had not been you know they and then they found him up on this this cliffside with puncture wounds and so a lot of channels and a lot of people had been talking about it and saying this this and that and i I had kind of reached out to a person that lived in Knott County, Kentucky. And um, he was, he went to school with Corey's mom and knew the dad and knew the EMT person, knew the, the responding police officer. 
And um, the mom was told to, there was, I believe, one interview with the mom on national news. Um, and I was told that she was told to shut up and just, just don't talk about the case. Um, and it'll it interviewed this guy um, on my channel about the case and about what the, how the community was. And uh, I was concerned about the mom, this, that, and, you know, he said, maybe I can get her to come on your channel and talk about, you know, everything. And I was like, no, I don't want to bring anything up, but I just want her to know that nobody's forgotten about her kid. You know, like, it's almost like this little boy was attacked. There was no, the case is still an open case. It's not a closed case and nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody's looking into it anymore. So I, 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 I just want people to know that these people who are attacked with no answers are still thought about. What What is your instinct in terms of the reaction to it then? Because is there a sort of general apathy towards the ideas you have because people don't take them seriously or do they take them seriously and they're attempting to sort of cover them up? Well, I, um, I was, <laughs> my parents are the biggest skeptics in the world. They are like, they are vanilla ice cream. And um, my mom had said something about, you know, what are you doing? And I was just like, well, you know, I said, listen to this. You say, I said, with with the, and I, I hate to bring up the case in Tennessee, but it, it's the one case that has piqued my interest. And I, it drives me insane, actually, to think about it. But I said, just let's take out Bigfoot, take out Dogman, take out any kind of paranormal out of that equation, right? You've got two people that were savagely attacked and torn up in the same exact location, in a location that's kind of in a, the dilapidated part of town, very rural, very, you know, isolated from the, the, the upper city part. I'm like, take all that apart. And but then, then put, so you take the creatures out, but don't have any mountain lion sightings. There's been very, very rare black bear sightings. Um, a, a pack of wild dog, and there are no wild dog in America. A wild dog is a species of animal that lives in Africa. And they, the media tends to love to use wild dog attack. Well, we don't have African dogs in America. So how are they, you know, coming here and chewing up people? Um, but you take that out and you're left with two people torn up, no explanation, both open cases, and a guy who Charles Owensby is not even heard of anymore. You you can't even, I reached out to him on Facebook and his Facebook thing is gone now. Um, there's no mention of him in the, in the, in the, in the news. I'd called Cop County Sheriff's office and said, uh, what's going on with Charles Owensby? Last time we heard from him or anything about him in the news was September of 2021. Is he still in jail? he's out of jail what's going on with the case we can't talk about it anymore so i'm like with that weirdness going on you're telling me there's an open investigation on dog attacks no well i mean i noticed that you'd um obviously listen to our previous guest on bigfoot and i suppose he has you at a disadvantage in the sense they have some footage uh the peterson film i, I talked to 
I've talked to people about that footage. Um, well, dubbing the, um, in the sorry, one of our one of our audience members, dubbing the dubbing, it's called Dope, he's in the chat, and he's asked, "What do you think about that Peterson film? Do you think it's genuine or not? Are you sold on it?" Yeah, I, I think that footage is is legit. Um, I'm friends with a woman named Claudia Ackley, who is friends with Bob Gimlin, who took the film, and uh, she had put me in touch with him. I've briefly spoken to him briefly because he's very old now. He has Alzheimer's and stuff. Um, and uh, I think that is, I think that is probably the most nine people claiming that they were in the suit. You know, where's the suit now? If the suit, if that really happened, why aren't they bringing us the suit, you know, to show us, Hey, this is what was worn. You know, um, I feel that that is really compelling evidence that there are creatures out there that we we don't see very often. Um, I agreed with his like lava tube thing. Another thing is with you, I think you had said trees. Um, there was a gentleman. I, I live in the Adirondacks in New York, so it's a very huge. It's one of the biggest state parks in the in our country. And there was a guy named Tom Mezick who disappeared. He was a hunter. It's a very strange case. Um, FBI came and was involved in the search and stuff like that. FBI doesn't get involved in cases like that unless it, state lines were crossed or uh, tender-aged youth. This guy was 82. I believe that he was looking for things. When you're looking for a missing person, you're looking for for evidence on the ground you're not looking up and i believe that these these creatures use the trees to their advantage this is excellent it sounds like something that may one day be perfect fodder for a, a quality horror movie um, <laughs> but jeff I, I appreciate you coming on and, and speaking to us is there anything you'd like to point people towards before i let you get back to what's left of your afternoon where, where can they find more of your content um, my channel is called Dogman Encounters with Jeffrey Nadalny, and I've uh, narrated three audiobooks. They were written by Tom Lyons, who in, who has investigated these uh, attacks and encounters, called Dogman Frightening Encounters, Volume 1, 2, and 3, and they are available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. That's excellent, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time, and, and all the best with your investigations. Stephen, thank you. It was great meeting you and have a wonderful You too. Thank you. So the um, seems to be a, a theme of Hairy Beast this evening. We've had Bigfoot, we've had uh, potential wolf men, and now we have Andrew Gold. Why am I going? Ash, leave me alone. Ash has taken no, me, me an epileptic fit. <laughs> they're all, they're all, oh, if you want an epileptic fit, hang on, what can I do here? Nobody wants an epileptic. No, okay. No, sorry, I forgot about that. No, don't have an epileptic fit. Don't do that. How was that, Stephen? On your debut co-hosting, was it was it fun? It was. It was a thing that happened for sure. <laughs> Great fun. No, oh, happy to be here. I yeah. always like speaking to other people, even if you aren't on the same page or you're skeptical. You always learn something. You always characters. Characters are always interesting to me. That's what it's about. I didn't get to watch because I was eating, um, well, I had some dinner and then I had an old twister, you know, the ice cream with the green and yellow sort of 
You're damn right, sir. Yeah. 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 Then I had some M&Ms. Um, so I was doing that. So I didn't get to see. But, you know, it looks like you're still alive and uh, doing well. So well done, man. Made it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mm. Sean Atwood there saying, well done, guys. Is it him or is it an alien that has come to take his place? We will never know. Um, Sean, as as you will know, if you were listening earlier, is away doing all his podcasts and things, recording in super HD quality so that you can get these fantastic podcasts for his, his uh, Sean Atwood True Crime podcast. Um, that's the end of our time on YouTube, I think, tonight. We're going on to Patreon in 10 minutes, so do come join us there. We'll be talking to a lady who was abducted by aliens, or, or that's what she says, and Alex Stein... Uh, about about anti-woke stuff and then Chris Armitage about forced sex transporting is the word that we are using. Um, don't forget to show our lovely co-host some support by going over to the Nighttube. Subscribe there if you're on YouTube. If you're on an audio podcast now, go to the Godless Spell Checker. Stephen's been particularly complex by naming it two different things, one for video and one for audio, but uh, you'll you'll be happy to have some people over there, won't you? Absolutely, yeah, and thank you for all the uh, lovely comments I've noticed throughout the evening. Oh, that's really nice. Um, yeah, go over there and tell him you came you came from Sean's show, uh, and and that I had some doing in it as well because Stephen loves talking about me and Sean. Uh, come over to my podcast on the Edge with Andrew Gold. Same name on both the video and the audio podcast. All right, Easy. okay. Look at you Easy. all organised and consolidated. <laughs> I like a challenge. Yeah, well, that's fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, right. Um, oh, what happened? Well, fair enough. We're going to end the stream. I think Ash is messing around with us from off the thing. Um, it's been a beautiful, beautiful time. And we will, yeah, well, I'll see you in 10 minutes. And then, and then Stephen will join us a bit after that. So make your way over. to If you haven't yet signed up, sign up to Patreon. Make your way over there. We love you guys. Any final thoughts, Stephen? Not even any thoughts, let alone final ones. So <laughs> we're all good. But this has been a pleasure. Yeah, all good. It's been a pleasure having you here. We have a lovely evening if you don't join us, but do join us and we'll see you in 